Our text is Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 17 through 25. Our topic, Jeremiah describes God as a loving father who therefore disciplines his children for their own good. The title of our message, Back to the Paddle Again. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, we love you and thank you for the word And this morning, Lord, you've given us this small section, but it's packed with information and inspiration, we hope, Lord. And I pray that we would understand by the time we're done, if we don't now, that we are your children and that you love us, Lord, with an everlasting love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Times have changed when it comes to disciplining children. Back in my day, every teacher hung a paddle on his or her classroom wall and used it on us when we were unruly. Nearly every parent supported corporal punishment, practiced it in the home. That was then, this is now. Corporal punishment of children in schools has been banned in 31 states. It's well on its way to being banned in the remaining 19 states. An international organization, the Global Initiative to End All Corporal Punishment of Children, reports that 32 countries prohibit all corporal punishment of children in all settings, including your home. Supreme courts in two other countries, Italy and Nepal, have ruled that corporal punishment in child raising is unlawful. At least 23 additional countries are actively debating prohibition in their legislatures. The Council of Europe has launched a campaign to ban corporal punishment of children in all of its 47 member states. Truth is, even among evangelical Christians whose literal reading of the Bible is to spare not the rod, corporal punishment of children is becoming infrequent. Now, I don't want to get into an argument this morning about the corporal punishment of children. I only presented facts that it is vanishing in order to be able to say this. A generation of people have grown up with no experience or example of corporal punishment, and therefore they do not respect God as someone who disciplines his own sons and daughters. If they are disobedient, they think God might yell at them through a message from the pulpit or maybe give them a time out, although they don't know what that means. But that's about all. However, listen to these verses from the book of Hebrews. It's in chapter 12, it's verses five and six. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord still chastens and scourges his followers and he does it because he loves them. He does it because he loves you. Jeremiah understood that the Lord disciplines those he loves. Our text describes his severe discipline of Judah. It does something else, though. It describes God as a disciplinarian. That is, it reveals the heart behind the discipline. We'll ask ourselves two questions. Number one, are you submitting your heart to God's discipline? And number two, are you seeing God's heart as your disciplinarian? First of all, in verses 17, 18, and 19, are you submitting your heart to God's discipline? Judah, the nation of Judah, was sinning and they wouldn't quit. God must discipline them. God was dealing with them as a nation and since he was, he would use another nation as his rod of discipline, as his paddle. And so we pick it up in verse 17. 
Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. In other words, grab anything of value and flee to the fortress of Jerusalem because an enemy was coming to throw out the inhabitants of the land surrounding the city. Some of you have been involved in evacuations. Maybe a fire was coming through your area or something like that. And um, it's, it's rough trying to figure out what you can grab in that brief period of time knowing that you're going to lose everything. And so this is one of those calls. The Lord is saying, the, you know, the, the judgment is still far off, but he's saying, hey, grab whatever you can, get out of the surrounding areas, come into the city, because the enemy is coming to throw out the inhabitants of the land. Those huddled behind its walls would finally realize, they would find it so that they were in distress. Now, there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes, a lot of movement of nations and threats, but most of the people in Jerusalem didn't find themselves in distress. Even though Jeremiah and other prophets were talking about the impending judgment, should they not repent, they weren't in distress. But finally, the call would come that the Babylonian army was on the march and they would be inside the city, huddled inside the walls, and they would know that they were in severe distress. This section here, it's, it's like a parent saying, if you don't stop doing such and such, you're going to get a spanking. Then when the disobedient child continues to rebel, the parent says, go to your room and wait for your spanking. So God's saying through Jeremiah, he says, hey, you, you, I'm going to discipline you if you don't repent. And he says, all right, the time is coming when you're going to have to huddle behind the walls and receive what's coming to you. Now, regardless whether or not you spank or spanked your children, you do discipline them in some fashion because you love them and for their own good. The chapter in Hebrews we quoted from earlier goes on to say, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline isn't simply good for you, though. It also proves something. Do you realize that discipline proves you are a son or a daughter who is loved by your Father in heaven? Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Jeremiah realized this and he said in verse 19, woe is me for my hurt, my wound is severe, but I say, truly this is an infirmity and I must bear it. Jeremiah called God's discipline my hurt, and a severe wound. The Babylonians would come against Judah in three waves over a 20-year period, in 605 B.C., in 597 B.C., and then finally in 586 B.C. It was in the first invasion that Daniel and his three friends and others were taken, taken captive to Babylon. Ezekiel was among those taken in the second wave, In the final wave, Nebuchadnezzar's army would set fire to the royal palace, to the temple, and to all the houses. They broke down the walls around Jerusalem and took most of the people into exile back to Babylon. Do we think this is an excessive discipline? Well, remember, God is disciplining a nation and he decided to use another nation as his rod. It was certainly severe. Jeremiah, who would live through it, did not think it excessive. 
Or if he did, he was able to put it into perspective. He said it was an infirmity and I must bear it. Now this word translated infirmity comes from a root word that can mean to uh, put to pain or to be wounded. And I believe Jeremiah was using it to describe the pain of the discipline that God was bringing. This was a swat that would definitely sting. You know, when I was in junior high school getting SWATs pretty regularly, in fact, we had a SWAT competition at one point because most of the teachers, men and women, were mamby-pamby about their SWATs. You would uh, get SWATed on the buttocks and it quite frankly didn't hurt unless you got into trouble with our football coach, Mr. Roosh. And then you would never want a SWAT again in the remainder of your entire life. It wasn't brutal, it wasn't abusive, but he knew how to give a swat. You went into his office in in the gym. Uh, He had another teacher as a witness, which put you on notice you were in some real trouble. Uh, You dropped your pants, and then with your underwear on, you bent over and grabbed your ankles, and he hit you one time with a flick of his wrist, and and then he had you pull up your pants and go out into the gym crying so that everybody could see that you weren't as manly as you thought you were when you were ditching class. And I tell you what, our SWAT competition ended after Mr. Roosh gave us that final SWAT. Uh, And uh, so, uh, you know, this was a SWAT that would definitely sting from Jeremiah's point of view to be taken captive by the Babylonians. I guess you could also call it a timeout because the Jews would be in Babylon and subject to that government for the next 70 years. So they got a SWAT and they got their timeout. More important than all of that, though, is Jeremiah's assessment, I must bear it. In other words, he must submit to it because it was an appropriate discipline for their sin, for their disobedience, and for their rebellion against God. Let me remind you that some of the activities that the Jews were involved in while they were worshiping in the temple, while they were claiming God as their, uh, you know, as their God, they were also simultaneously worshiping the Baals and Molech, sacrificing live infants uh, to the god Molech, uh, being involved in all manner of of sexual behavior in the worship of these gods, setting up idols in the temple, not to say, not to, you know, the least of which they were uh, treating one another with injustice and uh, they were oppressing the poor and all of that. And so uh, God designed a punishment that was appropriate. And if anything, it was lenient for what they were going through. But Jeremiah says, I must bear it. God disciplines his children whom he loves. Now exactly when and how he does it is sometimes hard to figure. For example, every sickness is not a discipline, but God can afflict with sickness as a discipline. Likewise, when tragedy strikes, we can't assume that it can be traced to some specific sin or failure. If you read the Bible, you see that God puts some of his most obedient children through the severest trials. Then too, we sometimes see a believer living in willful, deliberate, blatant rebellion. God seems to be doing absolutely nothing about it. God is always at work, however, disciplining. For example, discipline can be preventive and we really don't see this. We can't see it unless God reveals it to us. 
God can bring something into our lives or withhold something from us to keep us from harm. Preventive discipline is to be preferred to getting something that will lead to the ruin or wreckage of our lives. The Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh would be a biblical example of a preventive type discipline. It kept him in a place where he understood that in his weakness, God was made strong. I mean, today we talk about Paul the Apostle as the greatest uh, missionary of all time. Maybe I've, lately I've heard a lot of messages about Paul being the greatest Christian of all time. Silly to say that because there have been millions, maybe billions of Christians that we know nothing about. I think one of those guys is gonna be at the front of the line. But still, you know, if you're Paul, you, you might be tempted to believe your own press at some point. I'm the one that's going on. I'm being beaten. I'm being shipwrecked. I don't see even Peter doing this stuff. And, and so God had afflicted him with a thorn in the flesh, some physical infirmity. He called it the messenger of Satan. And he prayed about it, and God said, no, it's good for you. It's a preventive discipline. And so he received it as that. And so you and I, we just don't know. There, it could be we want something or, or God has given us something, and it is a preventive discipline to, because the Lord could see what we would do otherwise. I was thinking it wasn't really a preventive discipline, but I know this came to my mind while I was studying this. I had an old, my, my two older brothers are quite a bit older than me, but uh, at one point um, I was uh, bike riding down in San Bernardino. I was maybe, I must, I don't think I was even in junior high, I was probably in uh, elementary school or just in junior high, and I was on my 12 speed, and my brother Richard was, you know, we were kind of racing through some streets and stuff, and um, I didn't understand why at the time, but uh, we were coming up on 30th Street, and he knew I wasn't going to be able to stop on time, going really fast, and uh, it was one of the big main drags in San Bernardino with lots of traffic, and the next thing I know, he purposely wrecked us. He came and he got, went faster and he just turned his bike into my bike. It was terrible. I mean, I didn't break any bones, but our bikes were a mangled mess. We had to walk them home. We were cut and bruised. But it prevented me from being run over by a car because I wasn't paying any attention to where I was going. Uh, and so God does, he says, you know, Gene, you're gonna get run over by a car here. You're gonna be hit by a truck, spiritually speaking, if I don't do something in your life. And that something sometimes is, seems severe, but it's a discipline. Now, God can and he does mete out what scholars call retributive discipline. That means it comes upon us to deal with specific sin or sins. Jonah would be a good example of this. He ended up in the belly of a great fish as retribution for the specific sin of disobeying God's command, go to Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians. Jonah said, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. I hate the Assyrians going the other way. And so he gets on a ship going, headed the other way. God says, yeah, this won't do at all. He whips up a storm. Jonah says, you guys are gonna have to throw me overboard and I'll die before I go and talk to the Assyrians. I'm just gonna drown in the middle of the ocean. And then all of a sudden, this great fish comes up and swallows him whole and uh, spits him up on the beach three days later. And Jonah finally says, all right, I'll talk to the Assyrians, you know, I'll go to Nineveh. And he's still bummed out at the end of the book, but it's a, it's a retributive discipline. God immediately deals with him. 
In the end, unless I know I am in sin, I can't always be sure whether I am subject to preventive or retributive discipline. If I know I am in sin, I cannot always understand God's timing in my discipline. All of us have sinned in willful ways and you think, is the lightning coming? Is there a board coming? You know, what's happening? God uh, you know, is gracious. He doesn't always bring it immediately. His lack of immediate retribution, however, doesn't mean I'm getting away with anything. And this is where Jeremiah's words, I must bear it, apply to us. I simply submit myself to God, to every circumstance he brings into my life. If it's a trial, it will only strengthen my faith. If it's his discipline, it will either keep me on the narrow road or it will get me back on it. So if I'm living in sin today, I need to repent. If you're living in sin, you need to repent. If you're not living in sin, then think about the situation you do find yourself in. Maybe it's severe. Maybe you feel wounded and hurt. Can you say, I must bear it? That's the place you want to be in your heart and mind as God works all things together for the good. He's your good heavenly father who sees all things and has a wonderful plan he's working out for your life. But that plan is to make you more and more like Jesus and it must involve suffering and sacrifice and discipline along the way. Now in the remaining verses, are you seeing God's heart as your disciplinarian? It seems that the book of Jeremiah is all about Judah's sin and God's wrath, his judgment that's gonna fall. But there is also his compassion, his love. One thing we've been trying to accomplish in our studies through Jeremiah is to show something of the heart of God, of the nature of God, of the kind of the why behind all of this. The next few verses show something about God's heart as your disciplinarian. It gives you some of the why he disciplines. For one thing, it is to get you back to a place where he can actively bless you. And so in verse 20, he says, my tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Now, this seems to be God talking. As the Jews continue to sin, and as the destruction of their city and their temple approaches as discipline, God is remembering back to the days when there was no temple, only the portable tabernacle. In those days, he would move and the people would disassemble that tent, that tabernacle, and they would follow him. He was a pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. He would move and they would take the tent down and pack it a certain way and they would follow him and when he would stop, they would re-erect that structure. They would worship him there for the time that he determined. God was thinking back to their ancestors and he was lamenting what the current generation of Jews had lost. They had a beautiful walled city. They had a grand temple, Solomon's beautiful temple. But in many ways, they had been better off as a less settled people with the tabernacle. That's what God is saying here because God was lamenting the fact that they had lost the desire to worship and serve him. When they were out in the wilderness on their way to Kadesh Barnea and afterwards, even after they sinned and refused to go into the Holy Land and even for the early years of the conquest when they just had the tabernacle, 
they had a more vibrant, alive, powerful worship of the Lord. They were more connected to the Lord. And then as a tendency is in all of our lives when they became more materially successful and more materially set, they had a, the walled city of Jerusalem. David had gone up and taken Jerusalem and, and, and all and uh, became this, you know, the city of David. And then they, Solomon built a, a gorgeous, magnificent temple filled with all the finest things from all over the known world. People sat back, they put it on cruise control. The next thing you know, they were out in the groves worshiping Baal and Molech and you know, living kind of a dual life. And God said, you know, we were better off without all of this when it was just you and me. And uh, it's a warning to us, not just as individuals in terms of materialism, which is always a stress, but as a church as well. One of the things that our leadership prayed when we moved from the YMCA into the building is that we wouldn't become lazy and compliant and think that, well, now, you know, we don't really have anything to do anymore. There's no chairs to set up. There's no sound system to set up. There's no packing and unpacking. Uh, it, it's glorious. I love the building. I, you know, you know, but it's also easy to just sit back, kick back, and think you've arrived somewhere when in reality there's a great work to be done. You were created to worship and to serve. It's not a bad thing until you determine to worship and serve yourself rather than God. Then you lose your humanity, you lose your meaning, you lose your purpose, you lose your joy. God disciplines his followers to return them to their proper worship and service. And so God, you know, the Jews were saying, oh, we have the temple, we have the city. God says, yeah, I'm gonna burn those to the ground and then you'll worship me because what you need to have is me. Verse 21, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper and all their flocks shall be scattered. Now, the shepherds here is a reference to the leaders of God's earthly people. As we've seen in previous studies, they were blowing it. But what's happening here, you realize that God sees his followers as sheep he sees himself, of course, as the great shepherd and anybody who's in leadership are mere under-shepherds who are supposed to uh, you know, lead in the way he would lead. The point of this is that God has tender care for you. He thinks of you the way a good shepherd thinks of his sheep. When you sin, you are to him like a lost sheep. You are in grave danger, whether you know it or not. And so he comes after you. His discipline is intended to restore you to the safety and protection and provision of the flock. That's the heart behind any discipline that God brings. Verse 22, behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. Jeremiah said that the noise of the report has come. In other words, there was advance notice, uh, notice excuse me, giving opportunity to repent. I mentioned that the invasion of Judah by Babylon came in three waves. I would add that Jeremiah warned the Jews for nearly 40 years that it was coming. It's like a parent counting to a million instead of what they normally do. You ever been in the store or somewhere? If you don't stop this, I'm gonna count to three. And then, of course, you know, the kid knows that he has now until three. Or I'm gonna count to 10. So he goes till nine. Well, this is like God saying, I'm gonna count to one million 
and then I'm going to act. And, and you know, I've said this before, and I mean it in the most reverent way. God is, is a, he's the perfect, but sometimes a bad disciplinarian towards us in that he gives us so much rope. He gives us so much leeway. He's a bad example for a parent-child thing. You don't want to count to a million before you initiate discipline. But God, knowing us and working with us, he says, yeah, I'm your father, I'm gonna discipline you, but it's, you don't really want it, believe me. Why don't you just repent? And year after year after year after year after year, he ministers to his people seeking to get them to repent. And so as a disciplinarian, we would have to say God is more than fair. He is gracious, And so whenever I, if I know I'm being disciplined or if I wonder if I am, one thing I know for sure is that it is gracious. It is from a gracious heart. Verse 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. If God disciplines, it is only always for our good to direct our steps in such a way as to help us spiritually never to hinder us. God is looking ahead. He sees what you will become. If you could see it, you'd want to cooperate. But sometimes we see other things, ungodly things that detour us. So God works through discipline to move us forward. Verse 24 and 25, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. The great realization in these verses is that God deals differently with his children than he does with non-believers. He corrects you. As we've said, he discipline, his discipline in your life proves he loves you. He proves he is in a special relationship with you. It proves you are a son or daughter of his. Eventually, God will judge, not discipline, non-believers, here called the Gentiles who do not know God. He will hold them especially accountable for what they did to his own special people. God's disciplines can be severe. One very severe form we see in the Bible, in the New Testament, but also in the Old, premature death. For example, some believers in the church at Corinth were approaching the Lord's Supper in a sinful manner. Apparently, the uh, church in Corinth met on Sunday nights, And every Sunday night they would have a, we would call it a potluck, they called it a love feast. And uh, then they would have church uh, with the Lord's Supper uh, being uh, commemorated. And you can read the text there in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Some of them were coming and hoarding their food instead of sharing it with the less fortunate, many of whom were slaves, and they were getting drunk before communion. So you come to the potluck, imagine a potluck, you know, harvest hallelujah happening that we have, you come and instead of all the food you know, set up, you have your own hoard of food. You got this big feast going on, you won't let anybody else eat and you're throwing back a few cold ones so that by the time you got to communion, you were drunk, stumbling over yourself, going up there you know, to take communion. And so here's what Paul said, he goes, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Now, sleep, as you read in this context, means die. Their sin was bringing a discipline of death. And so Paul was saying, hey, you guys are blown at a communion, and this is why some of you are weak and getting sick, and this is why some of you are dead. God was killing people 
in the church at Corinth because they were taking communion uh, in an irreverent manner. The Apostle John wrote that we as believers should pray for those whose sin does not lead them to death. And then he added, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. That's 1 John 5, 16. The sin unto death is probably not a specific sin, but a certain kind of sin that is so severe that it merits the physical death of the individual. Early in the history of the church, Ananias and Sapphira conspired to lie to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit. And when Peter called them out on it, God killed them one after the other. Okay. We have no idea how many people have died prematurely as a discipline from God, but we're also told not to speculate. And again, I have to emphasize, it can be very difficult to determine when what is happening in my life is a preventive discipline. It's not so hard to determine what is a retributive discipline if I know that I'm in sin, but even then God works in ways and he has a timing that I cannot predict. The tendency that we have is to think that every sickness, every injury, every illness, everything that we would put in a category of being bad is a discipline in the sense of a punishment. But we know that isn't true because sometimes God's servants in the Bible are walking uprightly, walking on the narrow path and God brings a trial anyway. And so the, the idea isn't to figure out exactly what the discipline is or when I'm being disciplined. In the end, I must trust and know that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and disciples. For my part, the three words, the four words, excuse me, that Jeremiah spoke are what are important. I must bear it. And I would add, I must bear it joyfully, rejoicing I am his child and that he takes the time to discipline me, bringing me more and more each day uh, to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray.